Welcome to The Rate Debate, a lively discussion from the champions of Australian fixed income, featuring Darren Langer and Chris Rands from Nico Asset Management. Welcome to Episode 8 of The Rate Debate, and thanks for joining us. I'm Darren Langer, Head of Australian Fixed Income at Nico Asset Management, and joining me in the fixed income bunker, as always, is my co-portfolio manager, Chris Rands. Hi, everyone. It's... Tuesday the 4th of August and the RBA has just met and without surprise has decided to keep rates on hold. Uh, We expect to hear this from the RBA for the foreseeable future and we considered renaming the podcast The Rate Consensus. Since the RBA has almost ruled out the possibility of negative cash rates, it seemed like we were largely on the sidelines rate-wise. However, Governor Lowe did throw us a few morsels this week. Um, Today, he announced a recommencement of the bond buying program aimed at keeping three-year yields at 0.25%. And last week, he mentioned the possibility of taking the cash rate down to 0.1%. This got some in the market excited that it might happen today. But alas, uh, he he decided not to move rates. But Chris, what do you think 0.1% is going to actually do? Will it have much impact? And is 0.1% so much better than minus 0.1%? I think it's an interesting question to to kind of start thinking about that. And I was probably also one of the guys that was excited about it falling 15 basis points to 0.1. I think when you look at what the RBA has been saying and what they're trying to kind of point out, though, is they're basically ruled out negative rates for now, saying that it hurts the banking system and it can also cause a perverse incentive where rather than going out and consuming more, which is essentially what they want you to do, because rates are negative, you'll actually start trying to save more and and it can actually end up being kind of counterproductive to what they're trying to achieve. So in terms of negative, that seems to be the line that they're holding for now. When you look at point one, though, I don't think those arguments really hold up that they're using. I mean, I haven't really seen anything to to support it against being used. And if you look across the world, a lot of other countries and central banks are using it. So so my feeling here is it can and probably likely will be used. The, the, The bigger question is, will it have an effect and should they do it? My feeling is we've come so far, we're basically so close to zero. Will it have a huge effect? Probably not. You know, the difference between 0.25 and 0.1 is pretty minuscule, but you're basically at zero anyway. And is it going to hurt would be my question. And I can't really kind of come up to to an argument that would say it would hurt, which kind of means, well, you may as well try it. There there doesn't seem to be too much to lose from actually doing it. Yeah. One of the things that uh, interests me is that uh, the market sort of interprets, um, the RBA doesn't want to take cash rates to uh, negative levels as the fact that bond rates can't move to negative levels. We've seen in quite a few other economies where they still have a, a positive cash rate, um, certainly the front end of their yield curve out to you know three or four years has gone negative, uh, the UK being one of the main examples. Do you think our market's over-interpreting the RBA's um, lack of desire to take uh, the cash rate negative which uh, then should prevent bond yields from also maybe going negative and it's probably kept our yield curve a little bit steeper and, and therefore our rates a lot more attractive than some of the others offshore? I think the the UK is obviously the best example to look at this. So the UK cash rate is zero, but despite that, 
uh, bond yields out to kind of five, seven years are negative in the UK. So obviously they can go negative. It doesn't have to be the negative cash rate that takes them there. But I think the catalyst for the UK pricing that is their central bank seems a bit more open to thinking about it. So a few months ago, they actually came out and stated that they were looking into negative rates and, and thinking about the, about using them. And, and once you kind of say that you're thinking about it, the market can, can kind of push your hand and, and take the rates there anyway. So... For the RBA, as long as they say we're not going to use it and that kind of rhetoric holds strong, I, I don't really see why our yields would push through because there'll be a, a more kind of easy trade to just own cash rather than negative bond yields if they're never going to try it. So, you know, if they wanted to get rates lower, if they wanted to kind of push things further than they are, even just kind of thinking about it will, will take the market there, I think, in my opinion, because, you know, they try to get there first before everyone else does. Chris? Today, the RBA mentioned the situation in Victoria in their statement, which has certainly um, gotten a lot worse since the last time they um, they spoke to us, and even probably a little bit worse uh, since the last time the the governor um, presented to to markets. Um, but they they seem very relaxed about it from a policy perspective. But the way I look at things. You know, we're, we're talking about numbers of another $10 billion being wiped off the Australian economy, you know, when we've already had a significant amount of damage. Yes, it, it's true that we've seen a pickup off the lows that we saw in sort of March and April, but we're still a long way from what I would term normal. And we're even a long way from levels that were, um, you know, present in, in March. Given that New South Wales is you know, potentially in the same boat as Victoria, um, if, if luck doesn't go go their way, it, it seems very unusual that they should be so reluctant. I know you've argued in the past that they're not done, but they should be uh, looking at other alternatives. What do you think they would do if they had to do something from here? So my kind of feeling of of how we've got here and what's going on and kind of, I guess, my frustration with the, the lack of response that we've seen so far is Basically, every other economy across the world is using far more aggressive monetary policy than we are. Now, the, the reason I was kind of somewhat annoyed at what was going on is we are all in the same economic spot. There's no real difference between what is going on here and in other economies. Now, you can kind of make the argument that perhaps the US is worse, which is which is probably true, but compared to uh, other countries like New Zealand, we're kind of starting to look worse now. So when I look at the economic outcomes coming forward, with Victoria, for example, the, the Premier stated that there will probably be about 250,000 job losses. Retail is going to be shut for at least six weeks, which is going to put a dent in, in that economy. And the thing that was kind of really starting to weigh on my mind now is whether businesses are starting to close soon. So the, the reason that I kind of think that this is going to become more important now is that when APRA gave the banks a holiday on capital for the loans that they deferred, they basically came out in August and said, we're going to extend that for six months. But when you reassess the deferral, you need to make sure that the borrower has reasonable prospects of being able to repay the loan when the deferral period ends. So for companies that are in Victoria at the moment, if they're shut down for three, four months, I think it's going to start to be a little bit questionable that a business can be you know, shut for six to 10 months and then have the prospects of, I just open my doors and continue like nothing happened after the fact. So if businesses start to get shut down soon, I, I think that's when we'll see the real pain kind of starting in Victoria. And for the RBA, I would think that means 
they either need to be more willing to think about negative rates, which at the moment, uh, as we kind of discussed before, they said they're not, or get ready to start to increase the bond buying program. So given the fact that they said today that they're going to start buying bonds again, they're obviously thinking about it. They've tried to be, I think, a little bit reluctant to start, but I think they're going to have to start thinking about it. And uh, I think I stated these numbers last time to get the cash rate kind of 1% 1% lower just by buying bonds, they'd need to buy about 10% of GDP. So that works out to be about $200 billion worth. So, you know, my original feeling was we could see $200 billion of bond purchases coming over the next few months. So, Chris, we, we saw um, late last week the uh, AOFM uh, issued a 2051 bond, so far the, the longest bond on our yield curve, 30 years. It seemed to go pretty well and there was a fair amount of demand for it from offshore investors. Does the RBA really need to do much or, or do we think we can rely on offshore bond markets to continue funding um, the spending the government needs to do for their fiscal stimulus? Does the RBA really have a place when there seems to be so much demand? I think they do. I mean, you look at kind of the reason why the Aussie bonds were so demanded is that our our yield curve, which is, you know, the difference between the the short dated bonds and the long dated bonds is really steep. So there's about half a percent of pickup for owning Australian bonds compared to the US, uh, compared to Canada, compared to the UK. So kind of why our yields are high, there's probably not too much need for the RBA to step in and buy. But alternatively, it means the government's financing themselves at an expensive rate compared to our peers. So you can kind of look at this and say, if Victoria, you know, is shut down for too long, if New South Wales gets pulled into that, the fact that our our yields are higher means that as the government spends more and more, it's coming at a far higher rate than offshore. And, you know, eventually we're going to kind of pay through that for from higher interest payments. So I don't think they have to jump in. You know, there's enough demand there that the government can fund themselves. It's more the, the perspective of well, why are we paying an interest rate that's, you know, 50, 60 points higher than other countries? And, you know, why is the Aussie dollar starting to lift higher? That could kind of hurt the rebound as well. So it's more about, I guess, the, the relative value of how things look rather than can we achieve it? So, so what happens in the situation, though, where Aussie yields come down, um, they become more normalised with the rest of the globe, we still need to issue $200 billion worth of bonds. Where's that buying going to come from? And what, what is it about Australia that still makes us a relatively attractive destination for bond buyers? Well, I think the most obvious is that, you know, we have a strong credit rating still, you know, we're still rated AAA compared to those other countries that I mentioned, uh, the UK, US, Canada, we've got a far lower debt to GDP level. So if you're looking at a kind of a safe government bond, Australia still fits that bill. So at the moment, you're actually getting paid a nice yield pickup in your, and in my opinion, you're probably getting a, a relatively safer government bond in that our debt levels are only half of those peers. So I kind of personally think the demand is is still going to be there, even if it were to to shrink in. But perhaps then in that environment, you also do need the RBA playing a bigger role buying. But with that comes the benefit of, of stimulating the economy. So, you know, I kind of see it as multiple benefits sitting there. And I don't quite understand at the moment why we would be the only ones that are kind of sitting back and saying, no, 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 we don't need to buy any bonds at the moment. The economy's trajectory looks fine. Following on from that as well is if we kind of double back to the RBA's mandate, which is full employment and their inflation target, the RBA has essentially missed that inflation target now for about five years that we've seen inflation be below 2%. And I thought importantly in their statement today, they they said this about 
what will be in store for future inflation. So they say, given the ongoing spare capacity in the economy, inflation is expected to average between one and one and a half percent over the next couple of years. So I think the question is, given that they're now forecasting inflation to miss their target for another three or four years, and they've already missed it for four years, kind of what are the causes of that? And what do we think about the inflation target going forward? Yeah, certainly doesn't give you a lot of faith in uh, the ability to forecast inflation, does it? No, we, we've we've talked about this quite a few times where, you know, we've been quite critical of the RBA in the fact that they seem wedded to a target that they just can't achieve. It's not necessarily their fault. You know, there are other factors in the global economy that seem to be driving inflation lower, whether they be population aging or technologically driven sort of factors you know, there's probably not a lot they can do. And again, you know, I, I do question the rationale of chasing a target that you inherently know you can't meet. Five or six years ago, it was looking debatable whether the 2 to 3% band was appropriate for the level of growth that we were hitting. You know, today it just looks like it's completely out of the question. And, you know, I guess for the RBA to cave on that particular goal, it has to be a, a really long discussion with the government who ultimately set the goals for the RBA. And I don't think there's a lot of will on both sides of the fence at the moment to really make those big changes. But, you know, this is probably as good an opportunity as um, policymakers will get to really rethink the whole framework that we operate under and to see whether it's still appropriate as what it was back in the mid 80s when it was decided to go there. Yeah, I, I think that you look at what they've been able to achieve, not just in Australia. So, you know, as I said, they've missed the inflation target for about four or five years now. But if you go offshore, if you go to Europe, if you go to Japan, the US, it doesn't really matter where you go. Countries have been missing their inflation target. So in my opinion, whatever is occurring is not just to say, you know, the RBA hasn't been able to achieve this. There's a far bigger factor at play here that's causing multiple central banks to miss it. So I think if they're going to forecast one, one and a half percent, and then in a few years' time to say, well, we can get there now if we just, you know, push policy one more time. I think that will be when the error is made and, and why it kind of should be discussed now. As a kind of a bit of a separate information, I think the reason that they're saying that they're going to struggle to achieve it is that if you look at the breakdown of inflation, about 25% comes from housing into the, the weighting of the basket and another 10% comes from oil. So if we go into this environment where unemployment is high, you know, rents move sideways, you look at the oil demand at the moment, you know, Chevron reported recently and they said oil demand has been pretty weak. It's hard to see why oil prices would rise. And so I think when you look forward over the next 12 months, you need to be saying, I don't even really see where inflation is going to come from. So they may as well just tell us it's going to be one, one and a half now without getting our hopes up. Yeah, there's certainly not been a lot of um, good news on the uh, rent front or or on the house pricing front, and you know that that tends to drive as much um, as housing costs as anything else. So, yeah, I I agree. Um, you know, you look into the numbers, and it's just really hard to project how the RBA will get back to those sorts of numbers that they're talking about, at least you know in the next four to five years. Yeah, I mean the the offset would to that kind of comment would be, you know, you, you look through some of the other indicators or the weightings that sit in CPI and, you know, maybe food and beverage prices rise because, you know, long forgotten now is that the fires that were in Australia at the start of this year, that could have had a, you know, a, an impact on crops and those types of things. So maybe you can kind of create a, a scenario where it does rise. But I think at the moment you look at the most obvious indicators of, of housing and you just go, I'm not sure they're really going to be able to get there. Following from that 
though, I guess if the RBA is telling us that inflation is potentially going to be low here, and if you look at break-even inflation pricing, which is the market's indicator of what they think inflation is going to be doing, that's sitting at about one, one and a half percent as well. What's kind of the impetus and trade that's been going on with gold spiking so hard then? Usually that's seen as an inflation hedge and we're being told there's not a lot of inflation at the moment. Yeah, certainly the gold market seems to have a very, very different uh, view to rates markets on, on what the likelihood of inflation is if you believe um, you know, that the lift in the gold price is inflation related. I have a slightly different view on that, probably you know, not consensus, but one of the things around the fact that if we can't take bond yields negative, gold is actually not a bad investment to hold as a proxy for bonds. And you know, I think a lot of this rise in the gold price is more around using gold as a bond proxy rather than necessarily worrying about any rampant uh, breakout in inflation at the moment. I kind of have the the similar view to that. I think that quite often the argument against gold was why would you own that when you can own a bond because, you know, the gold has the storage costs and and the running fees and those types of things, whereas if you own bonds, you can get income at the same time. So those arguments, I think, in favour of bonds have kind of been thrown out the window and at this point in time, like you said, rates have kind of hit what looks to be a lower bound so you, you can get the same proxy by owning gold. But I personally think there's a A second one sitting in there, which is that if you think about the way governments are going to be spending money, typically when they run, for example, the the Australian government running a $200 billion deficit, typically you would think that should be higher yields because there's going to be so much supply. So as the governments issue lots and, and the central banks hold rates down, I think there could also be this other scenario where people say, well, I can own gold instead because if a government blows themselves up by issuing too much or monetizing debt, I kind of have the safety of the fact that gold is a, a known commodity with a known issuance base, so to speak, which means it shouldn't run away in the same way as government paper does. That's kind of a little bit, I guess, tinfoil doomsday type thing, but it does have that benefit of, of one of the downsides of the bond market at the moment being governments are just trying to monetize everything. I see where you're coming from, but you know, I, I'm still a bit uh, reluctant to think that gold is the great solution to all of the monetary problems that we have in the world. You know, we're still in a situation where you can't eat the stuff. Um, it's hard to chip off a bit to buy your groceries. So we're, we're really uh, live in a world where money will rule for some time. I don't think we're ever going to be able to use gold as a a base, which seems to be what some people are suggesting. But the relative value in gold is that, yes, it's not linked to somebody's money supply. So even in a situation of rampant hyperinflation or, um, you know, really poor growth and and an economy in turmoil, theory is that gold should still hold its value. But but I guess good luck uh, trying to transfer it in a world where you, your money's not worth anything. It's, it's not a good thought. It's all very much in the, you know, the dystopian sort of future kind of thinking. But, you know, if you extrapolate some of these these ideas out, you know, that, that's kind of what some of the pricing is implying at the moment. It's not a, not a pretty place to be. Well, that's it for this month. Uh, before we go, I wanted to answer a question we had from one of our listeners last month who was asking what we're thinking about corporate bonds. To us, corporate bonds are an important part of our portfolio, but we don't always have you know, a large position or, or the same position constantly. Uh, being an active manager, we move in and out of, of what we own. What are we thinking at the moment, Chris? Yeah, so you can probably tell, I guess, from what we've said over the past 
kind of 20, 30 minutes that we're probably a little bit more negative on the economic environment than others. So I think that's starting to be borne out in the Victorian cases and, and the shutdown in the economy. And what that has meant is we've been reluctant to add long dated credit into the portfolio. So, you know, where we're not sure if a business model is going to be changed and we're not certain how much debt these companies are going to have to take on, what we've tried to do is keep our corporates kind of relatively short dated, maturing over the next, you know, three or so years. And in that, what we've tried to do is sell some of the more expensive sectors and and rotate into the cheaper ones. So to, I guess, put that into perspective, because of the RBA's policy of lending to the banks at 0.25%, the banks haven't had to issue bonds and the markets kind of started to treat those as I guess, close to government guaranteed. And what we've done is we've extended into kind of corporates that we think can survive COVID who have underperformed some of those other sectors. And as long as we kind of feel that those corporates can survive the next few years, their business models will will somewhat remain intact. That's where we've kind of been looking to overweight the portfolio at the moment. So there is still areas that look like they're okay, but you need to make sure that one, you're comfortable with the credit and two, that you think they're going to survive over the next few months and and look to kind of move out of those that have been expensive and into some of those other sectors. So if you have any other questions that you would like answered in an upcoming episode, uh, send it to us at uh, the rate debate at nickoam.com. Last week, we released uh, a paper by Chris on the Australian housing market, and it should go into a bit more detail about some of the uh, themes that we've talked about today. So if you'd like to uh, read that, it's on our website at nicoam.com.au. So tune in next month when we deliver our latest thoughts on the RBA's first day of a spring rate decision and provide an update on what's been happening in markets. Until then, stay safe. This podcast was prepared by Nico AM Limited, ABN 9900337625256 AFSL number 237563. It is of a general nature only and does not constitute personal advice or an offer of any financial product. It does not take into account the objectives financial situation or needs of any individual. Any references to particular securities or sectors are for illustrative purposes only and this is not a recommendation. Any economic or market forecasts are not guaranteed.